Christ our captain For now the weak can say that they are strong In the strength that God has given With shield of faith and belt of truth To cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with
Welcome, Grace Church, and all who are joining us near and far. Thank you for joining us for our live stream this week and to sing, pray, and hear the word of God preached. You know, in times of crisis, we need to cling to Christ and the gospel, hear the word of God, and stay anchored in the word and keep clinging to Christ. And there are those times in life when you just need to stop in your tracks and attend to what is going on in the moment. And providentially, I am preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, verse by verse, and it speaks to this moment that we are in, especially today, as I am preaching Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 through 17, on death being the ultimate equalizer. Also, I want to encourage you, as you're there this morning singing, uh, to uh, take a picture of yourself singing and send it to us. We're putting together a little montage to show next week of people who are, uh, are uh, singing, and I was just reminded to do that via video, please, because then we can actually hear you singing as well as see you singing. Our call to, our call to worship today is from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 28 to 31. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And Lord God, we thank you that we can come together today as we sing as we pray, as we hear your word preached. May you do your work in every heart. May believers be strengthened. May unbelievers be saved. All for your glory and honor. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. God in his inspired and errant, infallible word, which is authoritative and binding on us, or the only perfect part of our worship service, God in his word. And the spirit of God will use the word of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. This is God's word. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Please join me now as we pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, that this is the day that you have made. We want to rejoice and be glad in it, knowing that there is a day to come when Christ will return. And Lord, our hope is in Christ. We look forward to Christ's return. But as we live here now today, Lord, we, we want to worship you. Lord, we want to acknowledge you. We want to praise you. We want to glorify you, Lord. We want to thank you. And we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are good and great and kind and patient and loving and merciful. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign. Lord, that you orchestrate all things after the counsel of your will. We thank you, Lord, that you are in control of all things. That your word by the Spirit applied to our hearts gives us comfort. It, it challenges us. It bolsters our souls. Lord, we acknowledge that only you know what you're doing during this time and, and what you want to do in our hearts and in our homes and in our lives during this time and in the world during this time. And even in our time in the word today, Lord, you know what your purposes are. And so, Lord, we ask for your will to be done as your word goes forth. We pray, Lord, that we would have open hearts to receive it. We pray, Lord, that we would have our hope firmly fixed in you. And Lord, we pray that you would bless all those who are sick, we pray that you would bless all those who are helping, police and fire and medical and many more. We pray, Lord, that you would bless each household with peace and with, even with sweet times in your word and prayer this week. Lord, we pray that you would bless our ministry partners near and far. Give them strength and endurance to finish the course and to fulfill their ministry. And Lord, we pray that your name would be honored and glorified and that the gospel would go forth today with clarity, with kindness, with humility and boldness during this time. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Death is the ultimate equalizer. It puts life in perspective. Ecclesiastes teaches that to truly live, you must face the reality of your impending death, your eventual death. For the first time in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 here, death brings the search for meaning via wisdom and folly, knowledge and pleasure, to full stop. And that won't be the last time that Solomon does this. Death wakes you up to live more fully. What wakes me up to live more fully is contemplating death. I hike often in the hills near my home, and snakes on the trail wake me up to the reality of death. It wakes me up to living and dying. A rattlesnake on the trail or even a possible rattlesnake on the trail keeps you on your toes. When it comes to death, some people are like Groucho Marx who said, I intend to live forever or die trying. Martin Luther King Jr. said, if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. Albert Hubbard said, to die means to stop sinning suddenly. Helen Keller said, death is no more than passing from one room to another. But there's a difference for me, she said, because in that other room, I shall be able to see. David Gibson describes death as the pen that bursts every bubble that we might use to shield ourselves from the truth. He says, think of work and, and money and pleasures as balloons. We fill them with time and energy and hope, and we see them expand. From outside, they gain mass, and you might assume weight. But inside, it's only vapor. Death. Gibson says, is the needle that shows the truth. Matthew McCullough said, death has an unmatched ability 
to expose the flimsiness of the things we believe give substance to our lives. You see, death is unsettling. It, it puts us off balance. Whatever the cause of death, it always affects us. It always saddens us. It always makes us think. It shocks us. It, it hurts. Death is inevitable. No one's exempt. No one gets a pass. No one escapes. Death is uncharted territory. Some saw the Puritans as death-obsessed. It is true that in the New England primer, uh, the letter Y was given this phrase, while youth do cheer, death may be near. While youth do cheer, death may be near. That was a time when life was very fragile, and it still is today. We just happen to camouflage it. Death is uncharted territory, and in these shelter-in-place days in which we are living, we can't ignore the death counts. People are dying. We are aware. You're aware, I'm aware of how many people are dying every day, worldwide and in the U.S., We've never been more locked into statistics as we are now. As of today, 202,000 people worldwide have died of COVID-19 and 53,000 in the United States. This is nothing new. There have been pandemics in the history of the world. In February 1957, a new influenza A, H2N2 virus emerged in East Asia. It triggered a pandemic. It was known as the Asian flu. It was estimated that 1. million deaths happened worldwide and 116,000 people died in the U.S. If you extrapolate that out to present day, that would equate to 212,000 deaths in the United States. So there have been pandemics bigger than COVID-19, but there has never been a worldwide response as we are seeing of this magnitude today. We're wearing our masks. We're staying home. We're obeying executive orders for love of fellow man and self-preservation if we can be really honest with each other. I don't think we've ever been more fixated as a society on staying alive. Ecclesiastes gives us cutting-edge wisdom that tells us how a believer is to live in light of death. How you are to live in light of death. Living in light of dying. Redeeming the time for Jesus and the gospel. And today I want you to see three truths surrounding death that are going to help you live more purposefully in life. That will help you face the reality and live redemptively. Truths that you need now more than ever. Three truths surrounding death. Start with me at verse 12. I want you to see the first truth. It's in verses 12 and 13. The first truth surrounding death is this. Your best efforts can't keep you from dying. Your best efforts can't keep you from dying. 
In verse 12, he begins, I turned to consider, literally, I'm going to face the facts. I'm going to look at reality. I'm going to review it. I'm going to turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Just like he said in verse 11. And so back-to-back verses are starting with the same word here. It's a literary device called an anaphora. And he shifts now. And what he's saying is, look, I have, I have done my experiment on the pursuit of pleasure. I have done my experiment on the pursuit of wisdom. That is all complete. Now let's take stock. Let's take inventory. And the same verdict comes forth. It's vapor. It's like grasping after wind. Chapter 1 told us that we are definitely not in control. This coronavirus pandemic has been telling us that. God is in control. And chapter 1 also told us we can't figure this out. Only God knows. And the best thinking that mankind does fails. How appropriate that is today. Chapter 2 opened with the pursuit of pleasure. How a man-made secular garden of Eden can't fulfill you. That you are to seek God's pleasure. That he alone satisfies your soul. It's like Solomon's begging us to see these truths. If only we would listen. And think about it. If Solomon of all people in the entire universe at that time came away empty-handed, the guy with everything, the guy who had everything, the guy could have anything he wanted, any time he wanted. If Solomon, of all people, comes away empty-handed, what does that mean for the rest of us? What hope does that give to anyone else? And so also in verse 12, he says, what can the man do who comes after the king? He's saying, look, I came away empty-handed. You're not going to succeed where I failed. He says, only what has already been done. Man vainly is trying to fill his soul. Everyone is deceived by the myth of the greener grass. You and I have bought into that lie over and over again, time and again. How many times do we have to learn the same lesson? And we warp God's good designs. We We ruin his order, and the result is emptiness. When God wants to fill us, we ignore the meaning of everything, which is God himself, the source of all wisdom and pleasure and delights. Solomon says in verse 13, I saw, and here he states the obvious. He's, I saw... There is more gain in wisdom than in folly. As, as just as there is more gain in light than in darkness. Like, I'd rather walk in the light than stub my foot in the dark. Uh, wisdom exceeds folly. But he, what he's telling us is it's temporary. It's exceeding it temporarily. He's saying very clearly it's better to be wise than foolish. Just as light is better than darkness. He says there's more gain in it. That literally means it it excels. The same word that was used in chapter 1, verse 3. What advantage does man have? Same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 11. There is no profit under the sun. So more gain, advantage, profit. 
So Solomon's saying, look, I found something relatively profitable. I found something that seems to work here on earth. It's like a flashlight in the darkness. Wisdom is a benefit. And you'll notice in this passage that he speaks of the wise five times and he speaks of the foolish five times. And one of the five times that he speaks of the wise, he speaks of himself. He is wise. He says me when he refers to the wise. The Proverbs tells us very clearly that the fool, the foolish, hates people and God and wisdom and love and correction and beauty and knowledge. And what Solomon is telling us is that human wisdom is temporarily better than folly. I mean, we can all see that, really. I mean, think about how we, how we live. We always want the competitive edge, right? Those of us that are so competitive. I mean, you think of all the things we remember. Spygate and Deflategate and, and the Major League Baseball sign-stealing scandal. And what you find out is you really can't get ahead. And what happens is wisdom and pleasure can't keep you from dying. There's no death exemption for knowing a lot or achieving a lot. So after all your projects, after all your possessions, after all your pleasures, you're left with zero. There's nothing in the account. And what happens is all the good gifts that God gives us, they're wonderful gifts. God gives so many. He is the giver, James says, of every good and perfect gift. He's so good to us. But we try to get out of God's gifts more than they can deliver, more than God has ever promised from them. The, the gifts are supposed to remind us of the giver, that we would praise the giver. But what we do is we try to get out of them more than they give. And so the first point is very clear. Your best efforts can't keep you from dying. With all its advantages, wisdom cannot overcome the ultimate equalizer over the wise and the foolish, and that is death. It leads us to our second truth. First truth, your best efforts cannot keep you from dying. doesn't matter how wise you are. doesn't matter how foolish you are. The second truth, and we see it in verses 14 through 16, is that everyone eventually dies. Let's state the obvious, as Solomon does. No one sustains their own life. Nobody puts themselves on life support and lives forever. Everyone dies. Look at verse 14. He starts by saying the wise have their eyes in their head. Right place to have them, right? What that means, to have your eyes in your head, means you have a clear grasp of reality. You have a clear grasp of reality. Now, we know that true wisdom... And Solomon says this over and over again, involves fearing God. Fearing God, the wise live. But then he says, the fool, though, walks in darkness. The fool walks in darkness. What is he getting at? Darkness there stands for spiritual darkness, spiritual blindness, if you will. And so what you see over and over again in the Bible is that the fool is not deficient mentally. They could be the smartest person in the hemisphere, okay? The fool is not mentally weak. The fool is morally compromised, morally bankrupt. The fool refuses to know and love and honor and fear God Almighty. The fool 
Psalm 14, verse 1 tells us, and Psalm 53, verse 1 tells us, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So he refuses to worship God. He refuses to listen to God. And so Solomon is telling us in verse 14, the wise have have a clear grasp of reality. The fool is in spiritual blindness. And then he says at the end of that verse, yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. I mean, just look around the world. Wise and foolish alike are dying left and right. Both die. That's why he says the same event. The same event he's talking about is death in this context. And what, what he does next, when he looks in verse fifth, when you look in verse 15, he contemplates his own death. He gets really personal. Look at verse 15. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. And then he says, why have I been so very wise? And so I said in my heart, this also is vanity. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It's brief. It's fleeting. So the reality-altering perspective on everything, my friends, is death. Time to lament. Time to weep. There's no earthly answer to that. Everyone eventually dies. Verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Same idea, they, they die and they're off the scene. And in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. And you say, but wait a minute, we remember all sorts of people in history. We don't remember most of them. All die, all are forgotten. Now look, I've been to a lot of estate sales. There's something about an estate sale that I love. And it's, you can get a really good deal. My, my home is filled with stuff that I have, uh, you know, found at estate sales and bought. But the thing I, I, I hate about estate sales is that they are so unfeeling and so impersonal. And I think about it every time I go into one of these homes. Someone has died. And their family is selling off all their stuff. And there's a, a company in there who, who is, you know, handling the sale. The family's not present. It's just a company taking care of it. And, and the whole situation is unfeeling and impersonal. And no one gives a thought, I guess, except me for who died. People are just rummaging through other people's carefully curated collections and tossing things aside left and right. Verse 16 says, the wise dies just like the fool. I mean, think about it. Wisdom, just trying to get as smart as you can be, just makes you weary. Pleasure, just trying to get as much as you can out of life, uh, brings a lot of pain. And everyone dies. Death stalks everyone. The grim reaper, meet Joe Black. Your heart will stop. The sand in the hourglass is going to run out. We are not deep-rooted trees. We are not load-bearing walls. We are more like a facade that is easily toppled by afternoon wind. It doesn't take a tornado to push us over. Everyone dies. 
So after tasting all the glorious wonders of God's grace, all the wisdom and pleasure that he wanted, Solomon says everybody dies. And you know who he could relate to? Solomon could relate to Adam. Solomon could identify with Adam in his fall from God's favor, kicked out of the garden. Outside of Eden, David must have felt so overwhelmed by the reality of his loss. And here is Solomon contrasting blessings and judgment. Think about it. When you have fellowship with God, you have joy and peace and, and comfort and, and love. The Bible just over and over again tells us what it's like to be in the presence of God. Even, even Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forever. But when fellowship with God is gone, because sin breaks fellowship, what you'll realize very quickly is the finality of death. And how irreversible it is. Death is final. Death is irreversible. I first felt it myself in the 10th grade when my Irish, English, Scottish grandfather, William Wallace Howell, died. I, I felt it again a couple years later when my Italian immigrant grandfather, Michael Shera, died. I wanted both times to turn back time. I wanted to see them again. It hurt so badly to my young heart. And I saw how final it was. I wanted to turn back time. I couldn't reverse it. And through the years, I have seen the finality of death. I have walked with many of you as your loved ones have died. One minute they're here with us. The next minute they're not here with us. And in that moment... And we realize the finality of death. We slam into the wall of, of human inability, of human limitations. We get to the end of ourselves. We have no resources in that situation. Jesus put it this way. What shall it profit a man if he gain the world but lose his soul? Mark 8, 36. Solomon is putting it this way. You can know a lot, and you can do a lot. And yet, as one writer put it, the wise and the foolish alike end up in the same graveyard. I mean, even in our cult culture of death, I mean, we live in a culture of death where it's legal to kill unborn babies by the thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, and even in our culture of death, we are still intuitively repulsed by death. We recoil when we see death. That's the normal human response. That's why we try to call it by other names. That's why we, we don't want to talk about it. That's why we hide it with formaldehyde. That's why we try to make a dead person look like they're alive. 
Solomon's telling you and I, life is brief. Death is certain. And there's a casket or an urn with your name on it. It's waiting for you. Your best efforts can't keep you from dying, and everyone eventually dies. This is true. It makes us lament. It makes us weep. It makes us feel deeply. I want to bring you to another truth. And this one hits us right in the face every single day. Third truth, verse 17. Let me read the verse first. So I hated life. Solomon, who had everything he wanted, says, I hated life after thinking about all of this. He said, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. It's brief. It's a vapor. I can't grasp it. The third truth for you and I to grasp today is this, that life is often deathly. Life is often deathly. That means it it resembles death, that it, it points to death. Life is often deathly. I hated life, he said. How honest. You ask most people how they're doing, and you'll get a a smokescreen response. I'm doing great. I'm fine. Christians will tell you, I'm blessed more than I deserve. I do it all the time. I say it all the time. I just take the high road and don't tell you what I really need to tell you, because if you really want to know, but I just say, God is so good and kind to me. Or I'm blessed more than I deserve. And sure, it's taking the high road, but Solomon says, I hated life. And he's not taking the low road. He's taking the real road. He's taking the honest road. He's not blowing smoke at us. He's saying, life is a vapor of smoke. He's saying, wake up. There's snakes on the trail. He's not saying he wants to die. Other biblical characters have have done so. Elijah wanted to die due to exhaustion and fear and self-pity, 1 Kings 19. Jonah wanted to die because he hated the people that, that God told him to love, and he hated the sermons God told him to preach to them. He preferred drowning to changing. Job asked God to let him die after losing his family and all he owned. People like Elijah and Jonah and Job that just wanted to die. Solomon's not saying that. When Solomon says, I hated life, it is different. What he is saying is that life is grievous. You notice that word grievous. It means it's bad, it's severe, it's evil, it's distasteful, it's worthy of tears, it's worthy of lament. The Westminster Confession describes the realities of Eden lost, life under the sun. It speaks of blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, 
horror of conscience and vile affections, along with other evils that befall us in our bodies, in our names, in our estates, in our relations and employments, together with death itself. There's a picture of Eden lost. The preacher, Solomon Koheleth, hates the state that he is in. He watches the news and weeps. The grave is on his mind. He surveys the mess, empty wisdom and meaningless pleasure. It's like an empty stadium after a game full of debris and trash and everyone just walks away for someone else to clean it up. And Solomon is disgusted. And he's inviting you to consider why. The reason why is because sometimes life is deathly. Now, I'm usually an optimist for the most part. I, for me, the glass is usually more than half full. Not all the time, but usually. One of my favorite movies is called Life is Beautiful. It's about how you can rise above even a concentration camp. I mean, we know God is good. Providentially, he blesses us with many things to enjoy, flowers and trees and animals and food and the people in our lives. Do you think about what God does? And he is so good. He sets sunflowers that in the morning and in the evening, they would move to face the sun. In his marvelous creation, he does this and so many more things. He gives us faith to believe and Family and he gives us work and leisure and rest. And it is all marred. It is all marred by sin. It is all marred by evil present in our hearts and in the world. We can't wrap our minds around it. The world is broken. We are broken. Sin has body slammed us and broken many bones. Our lives are crushed. Relationships are shattered. People are at war. Mankind fights for rights, left and right. Everything is tainted by sin. As Zach Eswin put it, murders, thefts, bribes, fists, weapons, lies used to brutalize people. We hate that what God created good has become like a rusty nail playground no longer fit for kids to play and cutting the skin of those who try. And he says, the wise cannot pretend that all is well. This world is often deathly. So Solomon says, I hated life. You might think that at that point in time, he is despairing. It's not a statement of despair. What it is, is a statement of faith. When we get to chapter 3, we'll see in verse 11 that God has put eternity into man's heart. So, your outrage over what is universal and avoidable suggests a 
divinely given discontent. A hope for something beyond this life. A statement of faith that asks, what shall we do then? How then shall we live? What, what can you do? I mean, in light of these truths, what can you do? I mean, right now, today, as we're living in 2020 and, and we're in the midst of quarantines and lockdowns and shelter in place and things we never would have dreamed would be our new normal on a daily basis, what can you do knowing these truths that we see, not just in the word of God, but are very, very obvious to anyone with eyes in their head or ears to hear? What can you do? Your best efforts can't keep you from dying. You won't live longer than God intends for you to live. You won't live longer than God has already ordained for you to live. Before you were born, every day that was ordained for you was set before you had one day. What do you do? Let me tell you what you do. You live for Christ best efforts can't keep you from dying, so live for Christ. I mean, God is great. God is sovereign. He knows all. He decrees all. He makes the wrath of man to praise him. He, he turned evil against itself at the cross and raised Jesus uh, by his predetermined plan and foreknowledge. What does 2 Corinthians 5 tell us? Look, no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. Live for him. Live for Christ. Paul put it this way, Philippians 1.21, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because dying means being with Christ forever. As Christ is with us now, we will be with him forever. So live for Christ and not yourself. I've said it before, but this crisis can be the most self-centered time of your life or the most God-centered moment of your life. The most selfish or, or service-oriented. There are so many opportunities this time is filled with so many blessings. And yet, it is also filled with intense spiritual battles and many tensions inside of many hearts and many homes. Some days we feel like we have majorly failed, that we don't have patience or forbearance or forgiveness in our hearts. In order to live for Christ right in this moment, what you need is a higher view of God's sufficiency, a higher view of Christ's all-encompassing sufficiency in your life and knowing that you're going to live painfully until you die. But, but if you're a believer in Jesus, God is with you and that you have not been left alone. What does James 1.5 say? If you lack wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. You're invited under trial to ask God for wisdom. But it's interesting. We think of that and we go, well, I have a big decision to make for work. Or I, have, I wonder who to marry or I wonder where to go to school or what job to take. And, and we, we, we apply that kind of only to life decisions. And it's not a bad thing to do that. I mean, we need wisdom regarding jobs and spouse and school and all these things. But James has something more in mind, more along the lines of what Solomon's been telling us. And it's this. 
that when trials bring you to the brink and you have nothing in you to navigate trauma or drama, ask God for the wisdom to meet the need. I mean, you could even just cry out, God, I'm falling apart. I feel like I'm falling apart. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. There's your answer. The sufficiency of God. There's your ultimate shelter in place. Abiding in Christ. Anytime, anywhere, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. If you're a believer today, trust your life again and again and again and again with gospel-centered trust in Christ. Where you quarantine the harmful things in your life and you social distance from what ruins and you, you, you abide, you remain under Christ. And you trust the Holy Spirit indwelling each believer that is restraining sin, that has God's mighty hand, holding back anarchy in the world with the spirit-indwelt church of Jesus Christ. You know, the government can't do this for us. Sheer willpower can't do it for us. But spirit-indwelt Christians seeking God's glory and seeking the good of all can make a huge difference in the world right now. You know, I've been asking a lot of my friends. He said, um, so how in this moment is God providing for your needs? How is he providing in this time? How has he enabled you to bless and help other people? Now, what's your biggest prayer request? What's the biggest burden on your heart right now? And I've got amazing friends. All my friends are better people than me. I'll tell you, they, they, I, just, I am so blown away and, and encouraged, and even my soul has been bolstered when I have been downcast, even this past week, by the, the hope in Christ that, that Christian friends are displaying, the, the trust, the God-dependency, the God-confidence, the testimony of the sufficiency of Christ in everything. We can rest in Christ's finished work. I want you to turn to Hebrews 4 with me. Take your copy of the scriptures and just go over to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read you several verses that are a huge encouragement to us. Hebrews 4, 11 through 16. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that is not a scary thing for believers in Jesus. If you're an unbeliever and you're under the wrath of God because you haven't turned to Christ and repented of your sins, that's another story. But if you're a believer, that's not scary, that's comforting. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's our answer, the sufficiency of Christ. We can come to Christ in our time of need. You can come to Christ in your time of need. Right this moment, pour your heart out to him. He's with you. He hasn't left you to your own devices. Now, if you're an unbeliever, and you stumbled upon this, this live stream, I'm so glad you're here. I want to invite you in to, to contemplate some deep truths with us, as you've been doing. But if you're an unbeliever right now, it, it's kind of like you say, well, I've got the, the steering wheel of my life, and I'm in control. And, and you might experience the best this world has to offer, or you might be in poverty or poor health. You've got to get to the point where you know your emptiness apart from God and that you know you're poor in spirit, as Jesus put, where you said, I'm just bankrupt. I have nothing, nothing to bring. I just want to throw myself at the mercy of God. For you, if that's you today, I want to read you a couple verses from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 to 28. It says that Jesus has appeared. This is the best news in the world, by the way, the best news in the world. Jesus appeared once for all, meaning he came to die for our sins in our place, once for all, our substitute. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He poured out his blood in our place at the cross. And then it says this, just as it is appointed unto man once to die, everyone's going to die. And then the judgment no second chance after death. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If that's you today, trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be forgiven of your sins. Say, I, I cannot leave my own life. I know I'm going to die, and I know judgment is coming. And I trust Christ. His love was displayed at the cross. His blood was shed in our place. He died for sinners. A British cricket player and missionary, C.T. Studd, said this once. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You only have one life. Your life's going to be over soon. Only what you do for Christ will last. Your best efforts can't keep you from dying. So live for Christ. You know, everyone eventually dies. What do you do with that? What do you do with that truth? Everyone's going to die. Well, lean into death. It's my advice to you today. Lean into death. All will taste the bitterness of mortality. You're going to die. Clay Jones, in a book that's coming out this week, on Tuesday, it's called Immortal. He talks about how the fear of death drives us every day. How we try to live as long as possible, hoping that science will find a way for us to live a very long time. And we deny mortality. We try to turn death into something benign. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, never fear dying, beloved Dying is the last but the least matter that a Christian has to be anxious about. Fear living. That is a hard battle to fight, a stern discipline to endure, a rough voyage to undergo. Think of Jesus. 
at Lazarus' grave. John 11. He's deeply moved. Lazarus is dead. It says he's greatly troubled in spirit. Uh, That literally means that he has a deep inward irritation. Uh, That literally there's a scolding, almost an anger in his heart. Death aroused Jesus' indignation. He who came to conquer death hates the presence of death. And you see the Bible's shortest verse revealing Christ's love. Jesus wept, and then he raised his friend from the dead. Think about you at the graveside of a loved one. You have separation. You have irritation. And then you remember your love for them, and so you weep with gratitude and with longing. You think about what is your only comfort in life and death? It's the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. It's a good starting place for us. Well, for true comfort, you must know Jesus, and you must trust Jesus, and you must live in Christ for Christ. And if you do that, you will live even if you die. As Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's how you face death. Trust Christ. And keep trusting Christ. He died in our place. He rose again. He defeated sin and Satan and death. Christ raised from the dead. That's the only reality that's going to transform how you live and how you die. Walt Wengerin put it this way in his book, Morning into Dancing. If the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, it's our fault. If death is not a daily reality, then worship and proclamation... Faith itself take on a dreamlike, unreal air. And Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten. No, Jesus is to be our necessary ally, our immediate continuing friend, the holy destroyer of death and the devil, my own beautiful Savior. You default to death and you won't live morbidly. You will live meaningfully. Embrace reality. The time is short. Don't let that paralyze you. Let it mobilize you. Whatever wakes you up to death makes you live. You need constant reminders. You need those touchstones of terror like snakes on a trail that sober you into sensibility. Your best efforts can't keep you from dying, so live for Christ. And everyone eventually dies, so lean into death. And lastly, I want to say one more thing to you. Life is often deathly. So you need to long for heaven. The deathliness of life makes you long for heaven. But to do that, you need a robust view of eternal life in Jesus, not a weak little view. When Solomon said, I said in my heart, verse 15, why have I been so very wise? He's talking about more than futility. The question implies something better to pursue. And and the point is, it's not in this life only. You need to prepare for the life to come. Don't build your man-made paradise on earth. That's going to be reduced to mud puddles and gutter scum. you got to prepare for eternity. Many Christians right now are fearing death more than non-Christians do. It's part fear of the unknown, but it's part... A lack of a robust view of the eternal. 
Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the full, abundant life. We think that means here and now. It's about life beyond this life. Jesus said, do not fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one that can kill body and soul in hell. Fear the one who reversed irreversible death. Easter, life beyond death. I mean, think about it. When you experience futility, you're experiencing death's power. But when you experience hope, you experience God's power. It puts wind in your sails because hope does not disappoint. You think about what Jesus said in John 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right before that, he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. Your heart is troubled right now. Don't let it be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Read Revelation 21 today. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Death will be defeated. Life everlasting. You've got to remember death, Jesus and yours, to be gospel-driven. The solution is not in denying death's reality. It's acknowledging it while you look for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because death is the ultimate equalizer. Everyone dies. Stephen Nichols wrote of a young Jonathan Edwards. He was unsure of the future. He had a first-rate education, many options before him, academic, science, you name it. His father, his grandfather, his uncles had all been pastors. He was 18 years old. He was far from the Connecticut River Valley that he grew up in. He was working in the midst of a church split in a Presbyterian church in New York City. He was invited to pastor the minority faction along the docks of the city harbor. This was 1722. New York City at that point was just under 10,000 people. And amidst that uncertainty, Edwards took to writing. He kept a journal. He penned some guidelines that he called his resolutions. Now, this was long before the Great Awakening, long before he wrote The Religious Affections and The Freedom of the Will and The Life of Brainerd and uh, all the books that fill many shelves and his missions work and his uh, presidency of Princeton. He was in his 19th year. 1722 to 1723, and at that point in his life, he was just Jonathan Edwards. One of several themes in his 70 resolutions concerns his deep sense of mortality and human frailty. He speaks of his death, and he speaks of the afterlife. It reminds us of the brevity of life and how we forget it and ignore it. Resolution number six, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolution seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolution 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Let that be your resolution today. 18th century life, you might say, well, that was frail and fragile so is 2020 life. We just camouflage it well. COVID-19 is deconstructing so many false Edens, laying us increasingly bare, and it's calling us to cling to Christ, to live for Christ, to lean into death, to long 
for heaven. Let's pray together. Lord God, we know that the world is being shaken to its foundations. It really is all the time. And we thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the ultimate stabilizer. Psalm 46.1, Lord God, you are a refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Lord, may our hope be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. May we stand on the solid rock of Christ, knowing that all other ground is sinking sand. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.
Thank you so much for joining us today uh, for this live stream time of singing and praying and hearing the word preached. Hope you join us next week as well at 9.45 a.m. Our prayer, as always, is that Jesus Christ will get all the glory, that unbelievers will come to faith in Christ, and that believers will grow in their faith. And again, if you're not a believer today, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you're a believer, keep believing in Jesus. He keeps your soul. I want to mention a couple of things. Next Sunday, I will be addressing the current crisis, giving God's perspective on several pertinent subjects from the Word of God, uh, but it's called Coronavirus and Christians. And then next Sunday night, I want to invite you to a special Grace Bible Institute that's next Sunday night at 7 p.m., Coronavirus and Christians. We'll be dealing with coronavirus and you, opinions, emotions, relationships, coronavirus and the church, leading, following, and unity, and then coronavirus and the government responding humbly and appropriate. So please uh, invite others and join us as well. It's important to address these challenges and opportunities that face believers during this time of both distress and dismay and inconvenience. I also want to encourage you to uh, take a video of, of your singing uh, and send it to us uh, Put together as we put together a montage for next week. And our closing scripture today is from Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, and then I'll pray, and then we'll be done. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you are in complete control. Thank you, Lord, that you know how many days you have ordained for us. May we live fully for your glory. Lord, today will you give us grace and strength to proclaim your word uh, to many near and far. Lord, may we meet people in heaven one day that become believers because the word and the gospel went out during this time. Lord, one day may we be walking the streets of the New Jerusalem and meet someone who got saved in 2020. Lord, we thank you that you are saving and sanctifying. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And we commit ourselves to you, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
precious cornerstone, sure foundation. You are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe you're all to Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the
when this passing world is over, we will see you face to face, and forever we will Jesus, you are all to us. Jesus, you are all to us. grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from a raging sea and I am safe on this solid ground the Lord is my salvation I will not fear when darkness falls
I'm not afraid to 